Morning. So two years ago, exactly two years ago or so, we started a study in the book of Ephesians. And um, we broke it off a couple of months later because of this pandemic thing, you know, that all of a sudden broke loose on us. And here we are two years later, and look around the room. Huh? So, it's like, what in the heck? When, when is this thing going to go away? Um, what, yeah, I know. So, um, so I say that, to, I, to, it's, just, it's just bizarre, right? It's, the last two years just kind of not just been crazy. I was listening to a podcast this week that said historians will look back on 2020 and 21 as, as one year. I mean, there'll, there'll just be no distinction between 20 and 21. Um, now, we're praying that 22 would be different, and, and, and I think it will be. But um, So I say all that to say that we're going to jump back into Ephesians starting today. All right? We, we started it two years ago. Uh, I think we got about a chapter and a half into it. And, and then COVID came. And we broke off and went through um, the Psalms. We started in the Psalms of Lament. We spent a few weeks going through Psalm 119. Um, and then we went through the book of Revelation. Um, I think we were in Isaiah before we were in Ephesians. Is that right, JT? Do you remember? I am looking at you. I asked my wife and she couldn't remember. Do y'all, anybody remember? Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, sounds good, or yeah, that's where we were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, never mind. We were in one of the Old Testament books, I'm pretty sure about that. And I really do think it was Isaiah. I think we were in there for a couple of years. Um, so we're going to reintroduce ourselves to the book of Ephesians, and as we do that, we're going to reintroduce ourselves to the church. And some would say, What? But I think it is good that we, we do that, that we reintroduce ourselves to the church and in some ways rediscover the church. Now, I've stolen that phrase, rediscover the church, from a little book that I read yesterday. I didn't intend to read it, but I started out yesterday morning early, just picked it up and started reading through this book that I've had on my shelf and we've had here for a while by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. It's part of the Nine Mark series called Rediscover Church. And the subtitle is, Why is the Body of Christ Essential? I would commend this little book to you. There's several copies of it out there on the bookstore. I would commend it to you and ask you to pick up a copy and just read through it because it is an, such a helpful reminder. And it is a reminder. But why is it? That the body of Christ is essential. Why is it that this entity, this organism, and I don't call it an organization intentionally, why is it that this entity, this body, is so essential? What is God's intentions and purposes in the church? And why is it that we felt it important two years ago to take time to work through the book of Ephesians, which I think will help us understand that as well as any New Testament book? So why are we getting back into it now? Well, one, because we don't want to leave something incomplete. We want to finish what we start. 
And that's especially true when we start studying through a different book of the Bible, as we have for years. But why is it important that we rediscover church, that we re- reintroduce ourselves to what the church is? Um, to help us do that today, our plan was to take our mission statement, Westwood's mission statement, that as a church, we're, we're intent on being grounded in Christ, growing together in the word, and going for God's glory. And our intent was to come before you, me and JT and Jason, and to each of us take a section of that and present it to you today, coming from the book of Ephesians, coming from different sections in the book of Ephesians. So, to reintroduce that book, but to also re reintroduce us, and as we often do for the last several years at the beginning of the year, remind ourselves of who we are at Westwood. So that's the intent for today. Jason will be doing it remotely um, because of the stuff going around, okay? Because it seems like everybody's had that or has it or you will have it. Just maintain your hope, okay? You'll have it, all right? We're grounded in our hope. So we know that you'll have that. So look at the book of Ephesians with me for just a second in chapter 1. And follow along with me as I read. Starting in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Pray with me this morning. Father, as we worship you this morning, as we sing um, your praise, as we read your word, as we dive into it again, Lord, um, we do lift up your holy name and we praise your glorious grace. Father, we just finished the, the, the book of Revelation. We just finished seeing the glorious consummation that we are headed toward. Lord, that reality that we live in now but await. Lord, that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And Father, help us, I pray, even as we get back into this great book of Ephesians, to understand that all of that is in Christ, Lord. Father, I pray that you'll focus our hearts' attention this morning on Jesus. 
Lord, the world around us, the things that go on around us, even the things that go on in our own hearts. Lord, they can be so distracting. They can be so uh, make it so difficult, Lord, to keep our, the eyes of our hearts fixed on you. But, Father, we ask that you do that today. Uh, thank you that we can gather in this place. Lord, we are mindful of, of, of church members, of, of members of our spiritual family, of members of our own families, Lord, that are struggling and sick and just a lot of things going on around us. Lord, we're not unaware of that. And we don't want to be casual about it, Lord. Um, but, Lord, we don't want to be fearful either. And we want you to help us, Father, in that, we pray. Because we are weak and we, we just confess our need to you. So thank you that our lives are built in Christ, Lord, established upon him. Um, and we lift this up to you and pray, Lord, for your uh, guidance and direction for us this morning as we uh, look at Ephesians again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So from Roxborough, what kind of perspective can we have? What kind of perspective does this little town give us on the world around us? Or let's just expand it for a minute, not just the world around us, but just the world in general. What about all of creation? Well, if Revelation should have done anything for us, it should have given us this vision, this understanding that what we see with physical eyes is not what there is to see, right? There is much more than that. Revelation unveiled for us this this whole picture of seen and unseen realities. Well, the same thing is true in the book of Ephesians, and Paul is peering out, well, probably not looking out at all, but he's in a prison as he writes this book to us. And his vision is just incredible. And he uses this word, all, this encompassing word, all, over 51 times in the book. He makes huge generalities as he's writing this letter from this prison cell. And so over and over and over, we see all, all, all. And in this first part of the book, this first 14 verses that I read to you, we see this idea of being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Fifteen times in 14 verses, we see this idea of being in Christ or in him. So what is it that Paul's trying to communicate to us? And as we look over this opening section and what we're going to see today is... As, as myself and Jason and JT kind of walk you through different parts of this, is Paul, at the very beginning of this book, looks back, how far? Back before the foundation of the world. And that God has called us and purposed us for something very specific and very glorious. He looks back. Then he looks to today. He looks at the present day reality. He looks back to how God the Father has called us And predestined us, if you will, to be holy and blameless before him and called us to be adopted into his family. He wants us grounded in that truth. Not just grounded, though, in the truth of some knowledge that we would have in our mind, but grounded in the truth of who God is. Grounded in the person of God. He wants us grounded in that truth that goes back before the foundation of the world. But he also wants us grounded in the truth of who we are in Christ and what it is that Christ has done for us. So he brings us up to today and says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And that God didn't do that stingily. He didn't do that in a miserly way. According to the riches of his grace, he lavished it on us. So he wants us grounded in that reality. The reality of what we know in the heart of hearts, that we're forgiven, but the, the reality of who we are in Christ. 
And then he also wants us grounded in the reality of the promise that God has for us for all of eternity that is sealed for us, promised to us in the Holy Spirit. And so that's what he does in this opening section. And I remember I went back and looked at our sermon notes from two years ago. And um, I think I even made a joke that day about Wanda Ball just kind of having the, the hair on the back of her neck curled up. Because this is just one run, this one long run-on sentence. Verses 3 through 14 is one sentence in the Greek. It just goes on and on and on and on. And, and it, it's just, he just can't stop. Once he gets going, he just can't stop. And it's all for the praise of God's glorious grace or the praise of his glory. Or the praise of his glorious grace. And so over and over and over, that's what we see Paul reminding us of here. That we are grounded in the truth that God the Father has called us to himself from before the foundation of the world. And church, that's where it starts for us locally here at Westwood. When we say we are grounded in Christ, that's not just a slogan. That's not just a motto, okay? It's not just a logo that we put on our letterhead. That is who we are. We are grounded in Christ. We are grounded in Christ. We are grounded in what God has done for us from before the foundation of the world. Called us and set us apart. That's the term there. He, he says, to the saints in Roxborough, in verse 2. You could say that. To the saints who are in Roxborough. You are saints, church. You are set apart. You are set apart positionally. And by that I mean Because you are in Christ, God looks down on us and sees us in Christ. He sees Jesus. He sees the holiness of Christ. And we are positionally set apart before God. But we are also in the progression, if you will, of being holy. We are in the progression of being set apart. It says in the book of Hebrews that we have been... Through that single offering that Jesus offers in Hebrews 10, 14, we are perfected for all time, but we are also those who are being sanctified. So our progression in holiness is one of those realities of who we are as as a church locally here, that we come along beside each other in that progress and in that process. Jason will talk about that. So who we are as set apart and sanctified is a positional reality. It's a progression, but it's also a promise that one day we are going to see him and we are going to be as he is. First John tells us we are God's children. Now, what we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall be as he is. We shall see him as he is and we will be as he is. It'll be done. Amen. We'll be it. It'll be finished. Our salvation. So that's the picture of what it means to be sanctified. And church, that's so important for us. Because the world around us, our own hearts, and Satan, our enemy, will lie to us and deceive us and want to remind us of who we were outside of Christ. And the New Testament's clear about that, as all of Scripture is. It is not a pretty picture. But in the book of Ephesians, we will see That glorious truth of what God has done for us that makes us who we are in Christ. We are saints. We are set apart. We stand before him holy and blameless. And we stand before him as children in his family. He has adopted us. He has brought us in. There's a family in our church right now going through a process of of being trained to become foster parents. 
What a glorious picture that is. You know, that child doesn't have any say-so as to what family he's going to be put in. That little girl doesn't have any say-so into what family she's going to be a part of. But by the gracious work that God has done, he has brought us into his family. Before the foundation of the world determined that that's who we would be adopted into his family. And he did that through Christ. It says in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. What a, what a picture this is of what God has done for us and is doing for us in Christ. From, from a divine perspective, what was God's purpose in all of this? To redeem us and bring us to himself and do that in such a way that we'd be before him, holy and blameless. The deceiver has no touch on us, no word he can bring to us. The accuser will have no words to say about us on that day. We are blameless before him because of the blameless perfection of Christ. That's what he's done for us. And he did it to us graciously, lavishly. He poured out according to his riches that, he, that he's done for us in Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. And it says there in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's what we saw in the book of Revelation. That's the goal. That's the end result. I had lunch this week with one of the, well, with Ben Francis from Theresa. It's interesting. Ben said, hey, I'm getting ready to start preaching in Ephesians this week. Well, now, he's not because he's sick today too. Okay, so... Um, pray for Joel Bratcher as he's preaching over at Theresa this morning. Um, but I said, Ben, why are you going into Ephesians? You know, you need to stop doing everything you see us doing over there at Westwood. That may not be the best thing to do for you, brother. Um, but the point being, that church, this church, every church needs to be reminded of who we are in Christ, what God's purpose and intent is, and that is clear here in verse 10. To unite all things in Him, all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Unity in a way that this world cannot and will not understand outside of Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. And then this promise, grounded in the truth that God has sealed us and given us this promise of His Holy Spirit. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's the promise of our inheritance. It's the guarantee that God is going to complete and finish what he has promised that he would start. It was promised by the prophets. We saw that in the Advent. It was promised for us by Jesus himself throughout the Gospel of John. He has all those beautiful passages in John 14 and 15 and 16 talking about the promised Holy Spirit. And the promised Holy Spirit is the proof. It's the seal. All right, that, that understanding that we see from what this seal is, it means this is who owns us, the seal of the Holy Spirit. It means that this transaction has been complete, stamped in place, it's done. The Holy Spirit is that promise that this is secure. I quoted two years ago, and I went back and I found this again, and I, it's so powerful to me. Just listen to this, this, this assurance of this promise. John Piper wrote this. If you go to bed tonight as a believer in Christ, why do you think you'll wake up as a Christian tomorrow? The fact that you've been a Christian for a long time? Your willpower? Do you feel confident that you're strong enough to keep on loving God? If these reasons are enough to stem your fears, then you have not considered your circumstances closely enough. 
We have a powerful enemy whose entire campaign is to destroy our faith. You still have sin that lives in you and seeks to eat away your hope. You live in a body that goes bad. And every night's sleep brings you closer to a day when your mind will lose its traction. And with it, your rock-solid hope of God and the gospel. Christians should have steel-strong confidence that they will remain Christians until they die. But it is precisely not because of our strength or our willpower or our solid determinedness to believe in Christ. Rather, it is because God himself has sealed us with his spirit. The only way a Christian can wake up without faith is if God withdraws the down payment of his Holy Spirit, and he will never do this. That's the promise. That's the assurance that we are grounded in church. And we are grounded in that together. We are grounded in that in such an organic, vital, by vital I mean life-giving way. One of the things that Rediscover Church talks about, um, and I really appreciate this, it's been, it was written less than two years ago. So one of the things that it talks about is rediscovering a New Testament understanding of who we are as the church. And listen, church, we are not virtual. Okay? Now, there's, there's more members of Westwood probably tuning in right now than are here physically. Or at least that will be the case before the week is over. But, our, and, and we've been working really, really hard and spending a lot of money to, to try to make our, the streaming service as, as good as it can be. But let me just be real clear. We do not want you comfortable with a virtual service. We don't want you to feel like you're here while you're there. We don't want you to feel like you're a part of here Without being here. Because that's not, the, that's not what a church is. Now there are churches, even now, you know, are, that are creating virtual campuses. And hiring virtual, you know, digital pastors. Who will oversee this digital congregation. That is a, that is a New Testament oxymoron. A virtual congregation is not a New Testament reality. We are the body of Christ connected. We are the flock of Christ together within the pen, if you will, the fence of this local church. We are the building of Christ, living stones being built together into a spiritual house. We are the bride of Christ, covenantly, sacrificially loved by our groom and brought together here in this local body. We are, we are all of these things. We are the family of Christ Brothers and sisters together. Praise God we have the ability technically to minister to one another and serve one another, preach the gospel, proclaim it. But that is not church. It is not. And we need to rediscover that New Testament understanding of who we are in Christ. And Ephesians will, will help us to do that. So that's what it means, church, for us to be grounded in Christ, is to be grounded in the reality of what God has done for us in ages past by calling us and saving us. What he has done for us and is doing for us today through the blood of Christ, that he continues to pour out that grace in such a marvelous, lavish, extravagant way. 
and the absolute rock-solid assurance that we have of the promise of His Holy Spirit, that He will finish what He started, and He will bind us together continually in Christ through the power of that Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's continue together this morning. Let's stand together and sing. and sisters. I'm so sorry I can't be here with you in person uh, this morning, um, especially with this type of service. Um, I'm missing being there, co-preaching with my brothers uh, there. I I can't be a a part of it live, but thankful to be a part of it in this way, Um, although I'd much rather be looking at your faces this morning than the backside of my phone right now. Uh, But uh, just have had some sickness this week and felt that it, it was probably not wise to be here with you in person, but I'm thankful to be able to be with you in this way. Uh, So let's continue to look through uh, the the letter of Ephesians as we um, really kick off, uh, kind of reboot our study through the book of Ephesians uh, from when uh, COVID first hit. Um, But we're looking this morning through our purpose statement, grounded in Christ, growing together in the word and going for God's glory. I know Gerald has already walked through, um, touching on grounded in Christ from the first chapter there in Ephesians. And really, that's one of the most beautiful aspects of this book to me. It's just the richness of the picture of our redemption we get from the book of Ephesians, beginning right from the get-go there in chapter 1, and especially through the section that Gerald walked you through, just looking at God's 
action in our redemption, how God acts to bring us to redemption. And all three members of the Godhead are intimately involved in this. And what a beautiful picture that is. And we turn to chapter 2, and uh, we see that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, with his mercy and his love, has brought us to life. And we see a beautiful picture of redemption even there. Um, culminating in verse 10, how we are his workmanship, this work that the Spirit is doing within us, um, that's all attributed to God and his gift of faith to us, that we cannot boast in this, but now he has given us good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk through. And beginning right at the end of that section in verse 11, that's not only where we left off when we left this study at the first, but something becomes quickly apparent to us as we make that transition into verse 11 there. And this is what is apparent to us or what should be apparent to us is the reminder that redemption is not to be understood primarily as an individual matter. What we see is that God is not just redeeming individuals in Christ, although he is. The grand objective in redemption, though, is that he is redeeming a church. He is redeeming a people. And this is not only the message of Ephesians 2.11 and beyond. This is the message of the entire New Testament. That my salvation is not just about me. That he is redeeming a church, a people, a household of faith, as we will see in this next passage from Ephesians uh, 2. We're going to begin in verse 19, and we're going to see how this uh, helps us understand what we are seeking to pursue in our uh, mission statement, our purpose statement here at Westwood in growing together in the word. What should that look like? And I think we get a beautiful picture of what that should look like right here. Once again, Paul is writing to a Gentile church. And this is a beautiful message to a group of Gentiles to remind them that they have been grafted into the body of Christ. Right? And so that's what we're going to see here beginning uh, in, in 219. And the first thing I want us to see is our redemptive identity is centered in this community of faith. Let me say that again. Our redemptive identity is centered in this community of faith. So our identity is only understood within the community of faith that is being built together as God completes this work of redemption in us. Look at verse 19. It says there, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Once again, he's writing to a group of Gentiles and he is encouraging them that I'm not just God is not just redeeming Gentiles so that you may build a Gentile church. No, as he redeems you, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see, God is redeeming a people who make up a single household of God. This is good news to those Gentiles. When Paul first wrote this letter, it is good news to us today. That as God works out this redemption of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, that he is bringing us all together into one household of faith. And that becomes incredibly clear in the verses that follow, beginning in verse 20. What we see here is that we are being joined together with one another into a holy temple. Listen to what he writes in verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
So what we find out here is that this household has one foundation, not two, not three, not five, one foundation. Not only one foundation, but one cornerstone. This redemption is built upon the word that has been proclaimed through the apostles, through the, the prophets as they have stewarded this word and most clear, most clearly revealed to us in the person of the word. Christ himself, who is the cornerstone of this household that is coming together. And what we learn in the New Testament, most explicitly stated for us in Romans 6, is that in redemption, we are fused together with Christ. It says there that we are united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection. We are united with him. We are fused with him. But what I believe we can add to that here, and what I believe Paul is trying to communicate to the church in, in Ephesus, also to us, is this truth. That in redemption, as we are fused together with Christ, the Spirit does the work of fusing us together with one another in him. And I would like to say this to you, that as miraculous as redemption is, and that is a miracle that God works within us. We just heard about that from Gerald in chapter 1 of Ephesians. But as miraculous is, as that is, I think it's almost as miraculous, this work that God does to unify his body together. If we think about the diversity that is there, made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, made up of a diversity of people, the Spirit does this miraculous work of unifying us, of bringing us together into one body. How miraculous is that? And He is joining us together, it says here in this passage, into a holy temple. And certainly, holy, the word holy there is intention for us to uh, think about righteousness, that we are made righteous in Christ. And that's one of the ways that he is bringing us together into a holy temple is in his righteousness, being made righteous in him. But as we so often default to morality when we think about holy, I think we also must think about it in terms of being set apart. That this people of God that he is building together, that he is bringing together, we are holy in the sense that we are set apart. We are set apart from the world. We are set apart from all else as his people. And what is it that sets us apart? We are made right in him, but it says there in the, in the text that we are set apart because we are in the Lord. You see, he is the point of unity. He, this is our point of unity. He is our point of unity. We are made united in Him. That that is the work that the Spirit is doing of uniting us all in Him. It's not in the similarity that we have in ages or the demographical background that we have or a socioeconomic status that we all share. It's not the color of our skin. It's not um, it's not uh, anything else that the world would maybe gravitate around or the way that we distinguish people together in the world. It is a diversity of people that we are uniting, that he is uniting in him. And here's the truth. From the outside looking in, the church should not make sense to the world. And indeed it does not as the Spirit does this work within us. And it doesn't make sense because our unity is not tied to anything that would unify anybody outside of the church in the world. He is our peace, the Scripture says. He is our unity. He is our cornerstone. You see, this was a point of great struggle for the community of faith in the New Testament. 
And we see that all throughout the scriptures as Paul is writing these letters to these churches, as they're trying to figure out how to do church, how to be the people of God. Yes, he's dealing with doctrinal issues, and we can gain a lot of doctrinal understanding from his writings, but even that is almost always within the context of relational struggles that the church was facing. It seems like he's always speaking into relational struggles within these churches. But that struggle always proves to be beautiful as in it the manifold wisdom of God is reflected and revealed to a watching world. How is the manifold presence of God revealed? When a bunch of diverse people that have nothing in common other than Christ come together and unity is achieved. It points to the manifold wisdom of God, his power, his redeeming power that points to the ultimate objective of him uniting all things in Christ. We get to get a glimpse of that in the church. And this is one of the ways I believe that it is so very easy for the church to begin to mirror um, the world rather than the gospel. And especially here in the West, here in the United States, and the way that we do church so often is we are quick to erect these silos in our church. And we invite people to come and say, hey, you can come, and in this silo you can find people who are just like you and in the same age bracket, or they're all married, or they're all single, or they all have this in common, and you can come and, and have all these things in common and find community here. And we, we, we offer the same kind of community that can be found out in the world. There is a book that I read not long ago on discipleship, one of the best that I've ever read. And in it, uh, the author um, draws a contrast between two types of groups that we can create within the church. The two types of groups are these. There are gospel groups and there are gospel plus groups. And this is the way he contrasts. This is the way he defines those. Gospel groups are a group of people that the only thing that they have in common is the gospel. That's it. It's a diversity of people, and the only thing that they have in common is the gospel. And the Spirit supernaturally achieves unity among diversity because of the gospel, and because that is the greatest thing they have in common. Whereas gospel plus groups are groups that may have the gospel in common. It's a group of believers who all trust in Jesus, and they all have the gospel in common, but they also have another something in common, another affinity in common. They're all the same age, or they all have the same likes and dislikes. They all practice the same hobby, or they all root for the same sports team, or they're all the same political affiliation, or something about it they all have in common. And this is the point that he makes in the book, and I think that he is spot on with this. He says, if... The group is a gospel plus group. It's not very long before the identity of the group will be in the plus and not in the gospel. And here's the truth, brothers and sisters. I think that we so often, and here's, we do this. I do this. If you ask me who I want to hang out with, I'm always going to gravitate towards people that I share common interests with or people that are similar in age or season of life or status in life. I'm just always going to gravitate towards people like that. But here's the truth. If that's what I do within the setting of the church, I forfeit such an opportunity for the Lord through his spirit to do a work in my heart in achieving unity in a way that only he can. And sometimes I'm afraid that we settle for that. And this is one of the reasons why we push sometimes for diversity in our life groups or diversity even in Sunday school or diversity in our men's and women's ministry or other programs in our church. It's not because we just want to frustrate the people in this church. That's the last thing I want to do. But we as your pastors desire for our church to experience this miraculous unity that only the Spirit can bring. 
And if we are not passionate about pursuing the biblical vision of community, then we will forfeit the opportunity of experiencing that kind of unity. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to forfeit that, and I don't want to just do what is easy. I want to lean into the sanctifying work of the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do in our church. And all of this, thirdly, is pursuing God's objective in his redemptive project together. Verse 22 says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is God's grand objective in this redemptive project? We just saw this in our study through Revelation. In Revelation 21 and 22, as we see the city of God coming down, we see that the city is, is a place, but it's also a people, and that people is the dwelling place of God. And we see that it's built on the foundation, the same foundation that we see here in Ephesians, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ is the cornerstone. And we see an end of what God is going to bring about, people from every tribe and nation and tongue coming together, praising him, having all things in common in him. It's a beautiful picture of the objective of this project of redemption that God is weaving together in his great plan and purpose. And as God completes this work, the church moves in rhythm with that work only as we pursue that grand objective together. We have to pursue it. We have to fix our eyes on that to see that that is what he is bringing about. And we have to pursue that. And here's the truth. We ought to be a people driven by two chief desires. Two chief desires. Here they are. Number one, to know God. Our chief desire should be to know God. That is why God created us, to know him, to glorify him in knowing him, to be satisfied in him, to find sufficiency in him, to know him in its full expression. That should be our desire. But here's the second aspect. My desire is also for you to know God. And this is the place of discipleship, that I not only am pursuing knowing God for myself, I want you to know God. And so that becomes the basis of our community, not the things that we have in common, that we would have in common anywhere else. What is different about this place is that what we have in common most is our desire to know God. And so as I press into that, I'm pressing you into that. And all of a sudden, all these other things fall away and there is unity. Where once there was division, or there's unity here, where there's division everywhere else, we are all pursuing the Lord together. That is my chief desire, to know God, but also for you to know God. You see, this is what discipleship is. This is what it is to grow together in the Word. It is pushing each other more deeply into the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it is. It's helping you move one step closer to Christ pushing you a little bit deeper into maturity into him, moving you, helping you to gain an all-encompassing desire to know him and to grow into maturity in that knowledge of him. And how does that take place? We've said that here before. How does discipleship take place? It's like this. As God's people, that's you and me, that's us. As God's people, through prayerful dependence on the Spirit, and in perseverance, faithfully speak the word of God into the lives of others. That is how that discipleship takes place. When we put ourselves in position to be able to speak the word of God into each other's lives faithfully, as we do this life together, as we walk this journey of life together, we push each other closer to Christ. We push each other deeper into knowing Him. You see, 
Pursuing this vision is not just about faithful participation in the programs of the church. That can become so legalistic so quickly, but that's not what it's about. It is rather about giving ourselves completely over to the work of the Spirit to complete this work in me as He completes this work in us. Giving ourselves completely over to something that only the Spirit can accomplish. Only the Spirit can do. And it's all for His glory. Brothers and sisters, here is the question for us. Does this vision mark our church? Does this vision mark my own life? Am I willing to deny myself and what I would what I would gravitate towards, what would make me comfortable, what I would want? Am I willing to deny myself to take up my cross, to follow him, to press into the sanctifying work he seeks to complete in me through his spirit? And as we begin 2022, my prayer is that this vision of redeemed community from Ephesians would captivate our hearts and set the direction of our feet as we pursue knowing God together. Let's stand together and sing. the King, we give our lives and offering in all the earth, resound with ceaseless praise to the Son. For the cause of Christ we go, with joy to reap, with faith to sow, as many seed and many put their trust in the Son. Deny myself, 
Take up my cross and follow the sun. Sing that again. Let it be my life's refrain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Deny myself, take up my cross and follow the sun. for God's glory wasn't supposed to be the invitation to leave the church today. <laughs> I knew following these guys it would be uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to try to make this relatively quick, but I've got the the tail end here. Going for God's glory. All right. Westwood's purpose is to see all people become grounded in Christ, growing together in the word and going for God's glory. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 if you want to flip over there. So we are to pursue the mission of God. It's not just about going on a mission trip. I've heard it said you shouldn't take people on a mission trip unless they're living the mission where they are. Here's the idea. It's not something that we go to do. It's who we are in Christ. It's a lifestyle, but it's more than a lifestyle. It's a life. It's who we are. We're to be on mission, going with God and Here's the reality. Every day is supposed to be a mission trip. Your mission field is right where you live. It begins in your home and it goes to your workplace and to your school or, you know, the stores and the restaurants you visit. It's your family, your neighbors. It's where God has given you a sphere of influence. That is your mission field. And we're called to be on mission with God in that mission field for his glory. Now, around here, the last two years, missions has looked very different. We haven't been able to go very much. And, and as I was thinking about this, I kept coming back to this reality that we really need to be challenged to go where God has allowed us to go. Is to be going. We're all called to make disciples, right? Go and make disciples. It's the great commission. Go and make disciples. It's really... As you are going, make disciples. So it's every day and it's everywhere you go. It's living, living missions. That's the idea. So Ephesians 5, we're going to see this as we uh, kind of step our toes back into the water of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's this idea of a child wanting to be like his dad. 
or like his parents. Now, this is the first time I've, I've ever done this, I believe, but I've got a Jethro story. All right. It's, that's my grandson. It won't be the last. But but here's the deal. He's almost two and he is he is taking in everything and he wants to be like his parents. But he's and he's he's repeating back everything he hears. Some of it sounds like what he's heard and some of it doesn't. But he is he's taking it in and and he's giving it back. The day after Christmas, we were down on the farm. Uh, he loves the tractor. So Daniel and and Jethro were helping me feed the cows. And we're we're in the farm truck headed back to the house. It's 75 degrees. The sun is shining and I've got the windows down and I got my arm out the window. And Daniel says, Dad, look. And I looked over and Jethro was sitting there in his dad's lap and he's looking at me and he's trying to mirror what I'm doing out the other window. Be imitators. Paul said several times, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But here he says to the church in Ephesus and he tells us, he tells us to imitate God. Now, there are many ways and facets to that that we can't imitate, right? There are many ways we can't imitate God. But he's talking about us imitating the character of God. That's what he's talking about. God is love. We're called his dearly loved children. He loves us. We're told to imitate God by walking in love. In 1 John, we're told many times that God is love. It's an overarching and fundamental aspect of his nature. His love was perfectly displayed on the cross. But 1 John 4, you don't have time to look over there, so just listen. Starting in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Perfected there means to come to complete maturity or reaches its intended goal. In some sense, there's this reality that they haven't seen God, but they might see a reflection of him in how we live out his love. Think about that. God revealed his love to us through Jesus and his death on the cross. And he desires to reveal his love for others through us, his church. God wants to really, he wants to love others through us. That's the idea. So we're to be like God. We're to walk in love. We're told to be like Jesus here and to love like Christ. And that's a sacrificial way. The idea here is, is dying to self. And what, what came to my mind was Paul Tripp's definition of love that we shared in the marriage class last year. He said there's no such thing as love that doesn't require sacrifice. And this was his definition. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or payback. Or that the person being loved is deserving. Okay, we get that, don't we? The reality that we don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve this free gift of salvation that he's given us. Amen. That's the truth. We don't deserve that. But he is. And let's think about that for a minute. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. 
Now, that word, I spent a long time. I dug in. There is so much there. And I'm going to try to summarize it very quickly. Jesus took our death. The death we deserve because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. He paid the price. He atoned for our sin. It means that God's just wrath toward those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ has been satisfied. It's been paid. It's been satisfied. Mercy's been applied to you and I. And we are redeemed and forgiven. That is good news. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God the Father. John Stock put it this way in his book on the atonement, the cross of Christ. He said, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. That's the gospel. This is love that God has loved us in this way so that we might be able to live through him and walk in love, imitating our father. So how do we go into our mission field for God's glory? How do we walk in love to those around us without Christ? Well, it requires sacrifice. It requires service. It requires us putting them before ourselves. It involves how we live and what we say and, and thinking about how we live, L- living in a way in a loving way to all those around us. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor. And I would, I would say that one of the easiest ways for folks to be able to see that we love God should be in how we love our neighbors. It should be a reflection. Because the two go together. But it's being ready to serve when there's an opportunity. It's showing kindness. It's being generous with your stuff and with your time. It's giving grace, especially when your flesh wants you to give something else. In other words, it's, it's, it's loving in, by the power of the Spirit. Let me ask you something. How often do you demonstrate compassion? We're told in the New Testament many times in various situations that Jesus had compassion on individuals and crowds. In Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know anyone or have you seen a crowd lately that fit that description? Harassed and helpless. Some of us would say, well, that, that sounds like me last week. But hopefully this doesn't sound like you without a shepherd. There's a whole lot there in that in that phrase without a shepherd. To me, the first thing that comes to mind is without protection. That is, they're easy prey and without direction. They're aimless. There's folks all around us like that, are they? We're called to make disciples as we go about life, walking in love, reflecting God, the father and God, the son. And the second thing we see here is we are called to be children imitating our father in the mission of gospel reconciliation. You see, God is light and we are to be like God and we're to shine for him. Ephesians five verses eight through ten. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then we're given a description of what it looks like to walk in the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Let me ask you, and this is where we might step on my toes and yours, too, is are those the words that people would use to describe us? Man, they're they are good. 
They're all about what is right. They're all about what is true. And man, they're trying to live to please the Lord. That's, that's what it means to walk in the light. To be God's light. To be shining for Him. To be going with the gospel. Listen, right now in the world, there is unprecedented ways for us to shine. Unprecedented. You've heard me talk about many times, um, or at least in passing, you've heard me say that people right now are hungry for the truth. They're hungry for it. That's because we're constantly berated with things that are questionable. Constantly. And that's not new. My granddaddy used to say, you can't trust everything you read in the paper. Sorry, uh, Bryn. But, yeah, uh, not anymore. It doesn't matter, does it? You can't, you can't trust everything you read in the paper or you see on TV. That was a while back when granddaddy would say that. Here's the reality. We live in a world that is full of deception. It was mentioned before. We have an enemy that is all about deception. He's the father of lies. We live in a world that's all about deception. And our sin deceives us. We need to be about the truth. And let me tell you what people need. They need the real truth. The truth that doesn't change. Unchanging truth. Life-changing truth. We have it. And they need it. Another way to shine. I'm not talking about being careless or, or, or anything like that. Or not being wise. But man, the fear over the past two years has been palpable in many places. In many ways in our culture and around the world. Fear. But listen. Sickness and death have been a part of life since the fall. Trust in the Lord means experiencing a peace that passes understanding. That is, even if it would be understandable if you were afraid. When we as people of faith demonstrate peace, when all the world around us is freaking out and cowering, we walk in light and we shine for the Lord. Romans 8, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In 1 Timothy, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And one more example. We, we, of course, you've, you've had to be careful, right? You've got to be careful. And we've been wearing masks and social distancing, six foot, all of this. Okay. But my concern is, what has that done for our hearts? Because now we see people as germ factories. We see people as dangerous Or maybe even we see ourselves in that way. Here's the reality. They are people made in the image of God. And they're to be cared for and respected and loved. And there are people that desperately need the truth of the gospel. And they need it with hands. They need it face to face. I can't walk away from this. They did that on purpose. We... we, Jesus came incarnationally. That is the ministry we've been called to do. And Gerald talked about it. It is it is person to person. I'm not saying being careless. I'm not saying don't be wise. I'm talking about our hearts and how we see the people around us. Be careful. Have you social distanced your heart from those God has called you to reach? 
Have you allowed yourself to put a mask on your heart? People need to see God's heart in us. Amen. People need the love of the Lord. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or a mask or social distance. But on a sand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, the Father in heaven. We are to be imitating our Father in the mission of gospel reconciliation. In, our, in sin, people have, have been separated from a holy God. And God's desire is to see people reconciled and come to him. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are investors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here's the idea. And this is what I want to encourage you. I think we need to be intentional. I believe many of us have been trying to live out the gospel. But I think it's time that we start speaking the gospel to the folks around us. Maybe you've been doing that. Maybe you haven't. There are folks that God has put on my heart that I've been trying to reach for a long time, but I have not been as direct as I'm getting ready to be. It's time they hear the truth of the gospel. They need to hear it. The most loving thing we can do is share the truth. And we need to be about doing that. We've been given the mission of gospel reconciliation. Many people we know are enemies of God right now. But the good news is that even while you're an enemy, you can be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Romans 5.10. God intends to make his appeal through us. It's, it's not just about sharing the gospel it's, uh, or verbalizing. We are told to implore them to come to God. Implore. That's a strong word. But it's the reality that we're talking about eternity. We're talking about heaven and hell. And it's not just a good idea. It's their greatest need. We're to implore them to be reconciled to God. Regardless of how they react. They may reject the message. They may reject you. They may become angry or argue or debate. And if you're persecuted, we're told to count it all joy if we suffer for the cause of Christ. But fear is an issue, right? Lack of faith is an issue. I'm concerned that it's apathy that's an issue. Do we care that they're lost? We're so distracted by the things and the mess of this world. Lord, we need some help to do what you called us to do. Listen, he has promised his presence. At the end of the Great Commission, he said, and I will go with you. I will be with you. We have the promise of his presence and that, with that comes power and strength. Earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. We're to live not for ourselves, but for the one who gave, who, who gave up his life to give us life. 
And what is it that compels us? The love of Christ should compel us. The love of Christ. He has loved us. He has given us life. And that should compel us to share that with others. And some might say in error, I'm not called to missions and I'm not called to evangelism. I want to close with this quote. William Booth said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have received and profess to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to proclaim his mercy to the world. Here's the reality. Here's the harsh reality. Every person will either experience God's mercy or God's justice. Let's go for God. Let's go for his glory. Let's walk in love and light. And let's implore others to come. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be reminded what it means to be a disciple. Lord, to be grounded in in Christ. Lord, to be committed to pressing in and growing as a disciple. And Lord, then to be living this faith out. And speaking it to those who desperately need to hear it. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged. Lord, I pray that this message would would cause us to be spurred on to love and good works. Lord, you called us to do this Christ life together and to be a light on this hill right here. Lord, I pray that we would shine far for you and your glory. Lord, that our light, your light in and through us would be bright right here in Rossborough and Person County and surrounding counties. But Lord, that you'd help us be faithful to even go to the ends of the earth. Lord, thank you for the promise of your presence. Every step of the way, every moment of the day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, JT. So we're going to um, close our service now and uh, worship together again as we get ready to finish up. If you'll look just one second at Ephesians 3. Jason alluded to this, so did I. And JT did too in an indirect way. So what's the point of all this? That we are grounded in Christ, growing together in His Word and going for His glory? It is... I think the most amazing statement that we read in the New Testament about what God's intention and purpose in all this is. It says in Ephesians 3.10, and it's, uh, all of this is pointing to this unity that Paul is talking about, this new man that God is creating in Christ, this breaking down barriers and bringing together in the gospel, this new humanity that is 
being redeemed through Jesus. He says in verse 10 of chapter 3, so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's it. That the church will be, and I believe is being, held up by God. That word manifold there carries the idea of multifaceted, like a diamond in the light on a black background. This multifaceted, creative, so multidimensional creativity of God that is in the church. God is holding it up as the example of his wisdom. God is holding it up and saying, look at this. This is what I'm doing in my son. This is what I'm doing through my grace. This is what I'm doing in bringing together a redeemed new man, a redeemed new humanity. And he's holding it up for the authorities and the rulers in the heavenly places for all eyes seen and unseen to see. What a beautiful picture that is, church. What an amazing reminder it is of how significant, how eternally significant everything that takes place within the body of Christ is. All right? Nothing is a little deal. It carries eternal significance. And Jesus has given us his spirit and promised his presence for us to go and be a part of that mission that he has called us to. And, and I'm just so thankful for the reminders of that that we've heard today from JT and from Jason, what that looks like in our lives together and what that looks like as we together then go and do what it is that God has called us to do. So please pray for that, all right? Pray for our intentionality in that. Pray for our intentionality in our discipleship together. Pray for our intentionality in how we plan and study and, and, and get ready to preach every week. Pray for our intentionality as we work each week. We have members of our church that serve in My Life Matters. We have members of our church that are serving in different uh, ministries around town. Pray for where God would call you to serve, all right? I talked with a deacon this week in a sister church here in our community, and the pastor of that church had challenged each of his deacons to come back to him there in December, or excuse me, in January, and be ready to share with the church as deacons, this is what God has called me to do. And I believe this is what he's calling us as a church to do. Every single one of those deacons is coming back to that church and saying, this is what God has called me to do. And this is how I believe he's leading us as a church to be involved in that. So to every member, we would say, how is it that God is calling you to be grounded? We know that. How is he calling you to grow together? And what is he calling you to go and do in your area of service? Pray specifically for one thing. I'm going to ask you to do that this morning. Back in our December church conference, we presented to the church the opportunity that we might have as a church to lead other churches and other folks within our community to host a refugee family, or maybe more than one refugee family, an Afghan refugee family that is here in the United States and looking for a place to be able to live and, and just be a family together. And we ask you to, to pray about that. We added something into our budget. That process has continued, and we're, and we're ready to submit an application to Samaritan's Purse that we... Um, here and through other churches, other folks from other churches have stepped up, and we're ready to begin that process of application for that. Would you please pray for that? Would you pray that God would just lead us and direct us, not just as a single church here, but as a community of churches, 
to, to be a part of extending that. JT talked about that. We can't go to Afghanistan. All right? We've sent families there before. Some of us have been there. We can't go to Afghanistan anymore. Neither can anybody else. And so what does God do? He brings those unreached Muslims to us. He brings them here. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? And listen, church, because we are new creatures in Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we no longer view other humanity through eyes of flesh. We see them spiritually. We see them made in the image of God, desperately lost without Christ. And God, in his kindness and grace, is bringing them to our doorstep. I heard this week, you and I cannot choose our neighbors, right? We don't get to choose our neighbors. We do get to choose to love them and serve them. So pray that God would lead us in this as, as he sees fit, okay? One last thing. You've heard it. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you turned your life over to the one who loves you and gave himself for you? Have you trusted in the one whose life was perfect, whose death was a substitute for yours, and whose resurrection proves that he is who the Bible says he is, and that God's power that raised him from the grave is the power that he wants to make available in your life to live for him and serve him? God will be faithful to forgive you, fill you with his spirit, place you in a church family where you can grow and serve and love together, and one day bring you to himself. That's that's the promise of the gospel. And we want you to be certain that that's the Jesus that you know and that you've trusted in him. Okay? Let's stand and uh, worship together and sing together as we close. Thank you. Let's sing a Christian's daily prayer. I seek your will 
two things to pray about or for. Uh, Scott Williams' father passed away um, the day before yesterday, and that funeral will be this next weekend. So pray for Scott and his family. Um, Kelly Rescar's grandmother passed away yesterday. Grandfather, I'm sorry. Yeah, her granddad. Uh, so pray for Kelly and her family in that um, this week, all right? And um, anything, any other pressing need? Uh, um, oh, um, Lily Ellis um, fell sometime back and has had to be moved from the facility where she has been to a rehab facility in uh, Danville. And she's having a really hard time with that move. So just pray for Lily and her family in that regard too, okay? All right, now you can go. God bless you as you do. Thank you.